The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Matthew chapter 24. And today we're going to look at verses 15 through 20 as Jesus continues to explain to his disciples when his kingdom on earth would begin. Uh, They'd ask him two questions in verse number three. When shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? And beginning in verse number four, Jesus answered those questions and he gave the longest answer to this that he did to any of the questions that the disciples asked. And we might well expect that because what happens at the end of the world is a major consideration in the Bible's teachings. I would suppose that since the beginning of time, people have wanted to know when will time end? When is it all going to come to an end? And actually, before the creation was maybe days or weeks old, God already gave a preview of the end. And you've read that many times. It's in the third chapter of Genesis, verse number 15, where the Bible says that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And when God said that, he was actually talking about the end. That the last thing that happens before this world comes to a close, to a very explosive end, is the final defeat of Satan when the Lord Jesus Christ crushes his head. And that means that the dominion and the power of Satan will be broken as he's cast into the lake of fire and brimstone forever. Now, I told you to turn to Matthew, but if you would, I want you to hold Matthew for just a minute. And let's look at Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 7. And here we go to the back of the book to see how it all ends. And in Matthew, of course, the disciples wanted to know, when is the kingdom going to begin? And here we find the last days of the kingdom. It's already been gone through. And before the Lord destroys the earth and creates a new universe that will endure forever, here is what's going to happen to Satan. Now notice verse number 7, Revelation chapter 20. And when the thousand years are expired... And those thousand years are the kingdom of Christ upon the earth. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now that is the final defeat of Satan. That is the final fulfillment of what we read in Genesis chapter 3.15. Now the victory of Christ at the cross when he was crucified then arose from the grave that was the assurance that this particular time would come to pass that Jesus will crush the head of Satan and as I said a moment ago the power and dominion of Satan will be broken and then he'll be thrown into the eternal fires of of hell but you notice here that it says Satan 
is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. And it also says where the beast and the false prophet are. Now the beast is the subject of the message today. Not fathers, but the beast. Uh, Matthew chapter 24. And the beast that we're talking about here is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist will share in the destruction of his father, who is the devil. Now that's the evil character that we're introduced to in Matthew 24, verse number 15. Now if you'd stand with me please as we read God's word. Matthew 24, verse number 15. Jesus is speaking to the disciples in the Olivet Discourse. And he says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Help us as we look into your word today. May we understand what you have for us. Speak to us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you'll back up just a little bit to verse number 8. Jesus said, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. Now that verse, as I've explained in the last two or three messages, is a very key verse. That's a clue to Jesus' answer about what it's going to be like in the last days before his kingdom comes. Now the disciples had asked about the kingdom, and, and essentially their questions are this. When will the kingdom be established, and when will Israel be restored to power? Now that's the thing that they're really interested in. And Jesus answered that question by talking about deceptions and false Christ, about wars and famines, pestilences, about natural disasters and about hatred, about betrayal, about apostasy, and about rampant sin. And he said, all of these things are the beginning of sorrows. And the clue is that word sorrows because what Jesus meant is that these terrible events are like the hard pains of labor that come before a mother gives birth to a child. That the birth pains, as we know, are a sign that a baby is coming. And Jesus says that there will be birth pains, there will be signs, terrible things that are going to happen before the kingdom of Christ comes upon the earth. Labor pains are excruciating, or at least I've been told so. Some of you that are the mothers of one child or multiple children, maybe you can attest to that. Uh, I think it was uh, Joan Rivers who said, if you want to know what birth is like, what birth pains are like, she said, take your lower lip and stretch it over the top of your head. Well, birth pains are terrible. They're excruciating. What Jesus is trying to tell us here that the last days before the kingdom comes are going to be like birth pains. These are going to be the worst days that the world has ever seen. So there will be pain. And when he talks about wars and he speaks of families and disasters, those are the pains that the world is going to go through just before the kingdom begins. Now, what he's talking about here are future events. These are things that have not happened yet. And these are birth pains that start after Jesus comes to rapture his church, rapture believers out of the world. 
Now, Christ doesn't want his people, that is, the church, to experience those pains. And so what he's promised to do is to deliver us from the wrath that is to come when he takes this time that it's talking about here to purge the world of sin and to put it back into the condition that it was when he created this world. Now, interestingly, the Bible never tells us that we are to look for signs of the rapture. The rapture, that event when Jesus comes in the air, is a hidden event. There aren't any clues in the scripture that tell us when that will happen. You can search the scriptures as hard as you want to look, and you're not going to find a hidden clue. You're not going to find a secret clue. You're not going to find a clue of any kind that tells you when the rapture is going to occur. So there's no hurricane, there's no tsunami, there's no earthquake, there's no famine, there is no political event. None of those things are signs of the rapture. But the Bible does tell us here that there are signs that will come after the rapture. And the thing that the disciples ask about here were signs of the kingdom. And the signs that he gives here are not hidden signs. These are things that the whole world is going to be able to see. And these signs are forthcoming and Jesus was not afraid, wasn't trying to hold anything back. He wanted to tell them what will happen when the kingdom is about to begin. Now again, these are not things that will be seen before the rapture. These are things that come afterwards. They are the birth pains. These are the sorrows of Matthew chapter 24. And when the world goes into this hard labor, that means that the baby is about to be born or the kingdom is about to begin. And I remind you once again also that the kingdom is the thing that's in question here. That's what the disciples wanted to know about. They didn't ask about the rapture because they didn't even know anything about the rapture as yet. That had not yet been revealed. That comes later. And so they're not asking about that. And, and for many people just take these verses and they confuse them. And, and they think that another season of tornadoes or of hurricanes or earthquakes, whatever it might be, that is a sign that the rapture is coming soon. Even some go so far as to say, well, what the Pope is doing right now, that's a sign that the rapture is coming soon. But I'll tell you one more time, there are no signs for the rapture. The subject here is the kingdom, and Jesus was especially interested in keeping the disciples from being confused about what was about to soon be upon them. Now, he had told them that Jerusalem was about to be destroyed, the temple was about to be destroyed, the whole religious system of the Jews was cursed and it would wither and it would die, and they would be tempted to confuse that with being the last days before the kingdom comes. And so Jesus uses this to tell them that is not the sign of the kingdom. When you see this happen, and it was about to happen in, in less than 50 years, all of those things, the destruction and all that would come, but that was not the sign of the end that's a future time. So now we come to verse number 15, and this is an utterly unique labor pain. The world has never seen anything like this. This is an intense, critical, intense, critical event. And when this happens, the kingdom of Christ is only three and a half years away. What is that critical event? It is the arrival of the Antichrist. Now look at verse number 15 again. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place. The abomination of desolation. That is a special term 
It's just another description of that awful person who is referred to as the beast, who is the Antichrist. And Jesus said, when you see this person who is spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then you'll know that the time for the kingdom is very short. Now, let's begin our discussion today by talking about this abomination of desolation. And I want to speak to you about the prophecy of the Antichrist, the prophecy of him. What Jesus says here in this 15th verse is not something new. He doesn't introduce a new topic that nobody's ever heard about before. What Jesus did when he preached was to draw from the Old Testament scriptures because those were the authoritative words of God. And anybody who believed that Jehovah was God, who was like the disciples and wanted to know what God says, and the place that they would go was to the Old Testament scriptures. Now today there's a lot of argument about whether the scriptures are actually inspired by God. Can we believe that all the Bible is true? Was the Bible actually spoken by God? And you hear those arguments all of the time. But I'll tell you this, that if you do not believe that the entire Bible is the word of God, then you can't trust Jesus Christ. You can't believe that Jesus Christ told the truth if you don't believe that the entire Bible is the word of God because he declared it to be so. He, he spoke about it as being the authoritative words of God, and he always gave the Bible the due respect that it deserves as God's word. Now here, he speaks about the prophecy of Daniel. At other times, he quoted from the Psalms, he quoted from Isaiah, he quoted from Jeremiah, he quoted from others of the prophets. But when it came to specifics about the Antichrist and about the time of tribulation... There is no prophet that is as precise as the prophet Daniel. Daniel spoke about this abomination of desolation who will stand in the holy place. Now what does he mean, stand in the holy place? What is the holy place? Well, the holy place is the temple. And he says when you see him go into the temple, that is a sign of this great tribulation that will be upon Israel. Now, I think that you can see that that presents a problem to us because if you've been studying and listening to the sermons as we've gone through this, Jesus had just spoken about the desolation of the temple. He said it's going to be destroyed. So how is it that in the last days, the Antichrist will stand in the temple? In 47 years, there will be no temple. So how is the Antichrist going to stand there? Well, let's back up just a little and let's see what goes on between Israel and and the Antichrist. First of all, there is a peace treaty. There's a peace treaty between Israel and the Antichrist. Now, I said that Daniel is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets as far as precise predictions about future events. Uh, someday what we might do is do a series on Daniel, and we'll just break down all those prophecies, and, and I can show you just the incredible insight that the Lord gave Daniel concerning these, these coming events. Daniel lived about 500 years before Christ, and yet Daniel knew the exact year that Christ would be born. Not only did he know that, but he knew the exact timing of the destruction of the temple that Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 24. Now, similarly, similarly, Daniel's the Old Testament prophet who gives detailed information about the end times and about the tribulation. He closely parallels what the Apostle John said in the Revelation. Now, Daniel saw the Antichrist. The Lord revealed that to him. 
And he saw this abomination of desolation who would make a false peace with Israel and he would lure them in with all of his sweet promises. And the Antichrist's intent is not to help Israel, but it's to gain Israel's confidence and he plans to destroy them. Now that's what Jesus is warning about here. He's speaking about a future time when Israel is going to be looking for a Messiah and this man will come along and he will pretend to be that Messiah. Now, what is the greatest hope of Israel today? Now, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll see the Orthodox Jews gathered at the Western Wall. And do you know what they're praying for every day? Do you know what causes them to go there and stand in front of that wall and to rock back and forth and with great animation make their prayers and causes them to strap on their phylacteries, those leather bands that they put on them and tie the leather boxes to their head. Do you know what causes them to do that? They're praying for a temple. They're praying that something will happen that will enable them to return to the worship of Jehovah God just like it was in the days of Solomon. Now today they don't have any control of the temple mount where the old temple once stood, they have no control of that area. Uh, on the temple mount, there are mosques, and that whole area is controlled by the Muslims. No Jews are allowed to go there without special permission. And so there's no hope of a temple being built there unless something is done about those mosques that are there and the Muslims that control the temple mount. And so the Jews get as close as they can to it. They stand there at the western wall and they pray that God will do something, just something, do something to change it all so that temple can be rebuilt. Well, what's the reason that there is no temple there? Well, ultimately, it's because of what they did to Christ. They crucified the real Messiah. And if they hadn't done that, if they had believed when Jesus came, if they realized he was the Messiah, then the discussion that we're having today would be moot. We wouldn't be talking about this at all because there would be a temple there and there would be a kingdom here right now. But Jesus knew that it wasn't going to happen. He knew that they were going to kill him and he knew the outcome of their rejection. And that's why he talks about the destruction of the temple. That is the outcome of their rejection. And the outcome of their rejection is the pain of standing there at that old wall, which, believe me, is nothing to look at. And they stand there in front of that old wall, and they make their prayers. They pray for a temple. Now, let me tell you something about this. God knew how it was going to turn out. And despite the Jews' rejection of Christ when he came, God still intends to have his kingdom. And he still intends that Israel is going to be the centerpiece of that kingdom and that the temple will be the centerpiece of it and Jerusalem will be the centerpiece of it and that's where all the people of the world are going to come and worship the Lord God. Now the Jews expect that that promise will come true and yet they don't understand how. They don't know that it's still Jesus Christ that they need. They don't understand that Jesus Christ is the one who will turn Israel back to him and Jesus Christ is the one who will give them their kingdom and will give them their new temple. And that's going to happen. But it's not going to happen until the abomination of desolation shows up first. It's not until the Antichrist comes and shows himself. And so foolishly, the Jews today don't understand who the real Christ is. Even now, they're amassing materials 
in hope that someday they'll be able to build a new temple. Now, maybe you didn't know that, but the Orthodox Jews today are fashioning new altars. They're fashioning a, a table of showbread and, and new menorahs. Uh, a few years ago, they dedicated a new menorah that they built for the temple. And then they have other articles that they've made to go into it. Now, that's what the Jews want. And so what do you suppose will happen when someone shows up who has the ability to make that prayer come true? What if somebody shows up and says, I can give you a temple? What if someone says, come and support me and I'll give you the temple to worship your God? Well, what are they going to do? They'll say, where do we sign? And they'll swear their allegiance to him and he promises them protection from all those pesky Muslims that have control of the mount. And he says, no problem, I can make it happen for you. And who knows, maybe when, when he appears, he'll take those very same materials that they've been gathering together and he'll put it all together and he'll make that temple happen. Now, you should understand, and I think that you do, that the Jews are the most hated people on the planet. They always have been. That, that's the way it's been since the very beginning. There have been very few years of extended peace for the nation of Israel. In fact, the greatest time of peace for Israel was in the days of Solomon. And what did Solomon do? He built this magnificent, unparalleled temple for the Lord God. And so if someone comes again and says, I can do that, then you can bet your life that the Jews are going to follow him. Now let's turn to Daniel and let's see what Jesus is talking about. Now first we want to go to Daniel chapter 9 and verse number 27. And uh, I don't have time to go into all of Daniel's prophecy, but let me just give you a brief explanation that um, there are time periods that are called weeks that Daniel uses to explain when things will happen. These weeks are periods of seven years duration. The last week that Daniel speaks of is the last seven years before Christ comes in his kingdom. Now that's the last week that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount and or rather uh, the uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. The birth pains, the tribulation, that's seven years. That's the last week that Daniel speaks of. Now this is what Daniel is talking about in Daniel chapter 9, verse number 27. It says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation of that determined shall be poured, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, let me give you the short version of all that. He says, he shall confirm. That's speaking of the Antichrist. It means that he will confirm this. He will confirm a covenant with Israel. And that covenant is supposed to last for one week, or is in Daniel's terminology, a peace treaty that's supposed to last for seven years. And so that peace treaty would cover the seven years of the tribulation. So he makes this promise in the treaty that Israel, that's been so long oppressed by the world, will receive protection from their enemies, and then he'll give them a new temple in Jerusalem to worship their God. Now, that seems impossible to us. We, we know that those mosques are there on the Temple Mount, and we know there's just no way that that can happen. But we haven't seen the end times. 
We haven't seen the devastation that the world will experience. And we've never seen a man who is like the Antichrist who rises out of that devastation with hope for the world and he can make this happen and he will build a temple and the Jews will resume their worship and their sacrifices and the Antichrist will be there and he'll say, don't worry about anything because I'm going to protect you. And so the temple is built, and the Jews think that they have it made. Finally, all the oppression is over, and now they can worship God in peace and safety. So they sign the peace treaty, and the Antichrist has Israel eating out of his hand. But his plan was never to protect the Jews. His plan is to lure them in with a false promise. His plan is to give them a false peace because this is what Satan wants. He wants to destroy the Jews and if he destroys them, then there is no kingdom. If he destroys the Jews, then God's promises will fail. Now, do you know what would happen if even one of God's promises were to fail? He couldn't be God. He couldn't be omnipotent. He couldn't be omniscient. He couldn't be immutable. God could not be sovereign. And all of those are the very reasons why you can't lose your salvation. Those are the reasons uh, that are the backbone of God's promises. These are the very character of God. If he can't keep his promises, then he can't be the true God. And so it's the devil's intent to throw away God's promises, and that's the threat that's behind the false peace of the Antichrist. Now, folks, uh, it's all about the kingdom. And Satan and the Antichrist are intent on stopping the kingdom. And so it just seems amazing to me that in the eschatology of some Christians that they say that there is going to be no literal kingdom. Well, if that's true, then God made a false promise. He made a false promise to Israel, and if that's true, then the devil wins. And if that happens, God cannot be God. And so the false peace is made with Israel. But look at what happens in the rest of Daniel Chapter 9, verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That's seven years. And in the midst of the week, in the middle of those seven years, he shall cease the sacrifice, and the, or he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So the peace treaty is seven years. The Jews begin their worship and they make their sacrifices. And when they're drawn in, in the middle of that seven years, after three and a half years, the Antichrist will cause the Jewish sacrifices to cease. And he'll enter into the temple and he will defile it. For the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. And that's where we get the terminology, the abomination of desolation. And what he will do is unspeakable things in the temple. Now, you know what the Jews are like, what the Jews were like in the time of Jesus, all the ceremonies that they go through to make sure that everything is pure, everything that they go through to make everything ceremonially pure and kosher, all of that, and what the Antichrist does, he is a Gentile who marches into the temple and he puts his filthy hands on everything... And then he begins to inflict the worst persecution that Israel has ever experienced. And Daniel said it's going to happen after three and a half years. Now that time period is confirmed in Daniel 7, verse number 25. Let me show that to you. If you look in Daniel 7, and verse number 25, 
It says, and, and he shall speak great words. That's the Antichrist. He shall speak great words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to char or change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Now a time is one year, times is two years, and the dividing of time is a half year. You add that together and you get three and a half years. And so after three and a half years, the Antichrist goes in to the temple, and that leaves another three and a half years until Christ brings his kingdom to the earth. Now let's look at the book of Revelation and let's see here how this prophecy is confirmed in the New Testament. So we go to Revelation chapter 12 and we've discussed this chapter last time and how this speaks of the Antichrist and the persecution of Israel. And we noted that the dragon in the passage that we're about to read is Satan by extension, the Antichrist, he works through him. So in Revelation chapter 12, in verse number 13, it says, And when the dragon, that's Satan, and when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's Israel, which brought forth the man-child, that's Jesus Christ. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, and a half time. From the face of the serpent. Now there you see three and a half years again. The woman is Israel. Israel is persecuted for three and a half years. Now go up to verse number six in that same chapter. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Twelve hundred and sixty days. That's three and a half years. And so they're three and a half years into the tribulation and this peace is broken and then comes the worst persecution of all. For the next three and a half years, the Bible calls it great tribulation. I mean, this is a really a, a stirring up and a setup for the worst crimes that are imaginable against Israel. This is the very worst. These are the worst of the birth pains and then the kingdom will begin. Now, I want you to notice a change that takes place. Up to this point, the Antichrist is a political leader. He's a political savior. He's lauded as a political genius, a great forger of peace. But he's not interested in being known as a, another political savior. His aspirations are much higher. Jesus said, back in Matthew 24, and I'll read this, you stay where you are for just a minute. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place. The holy place is the temple. And what is the reason that the Antichrist is in the temple? Well, his real reason is this. To proclaim himself to be God. This is the proclamation of deity. Now, the Antichrist doesn't want to be another Obama. He doesn't want to be another Putin. He doesn't want to be another Lenin or Mao. He wants to be God. And he wants to be worshipped as God. I mean, what is he? He's the Antichrist. He's, he's the imitator of Christ. And what he wants to be is, is God as Jesus Christ is God. Now, you're still there in Revelation. Look at chapter 13. Revelation 13, verses 4 through 8. And here it says... And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, that's the Antichrist. And they worshipped the beast, the Antichrist, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who's able to make war with him? 
And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. That's three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now he intends to be worshipped. He goes into the temple to be enthroned as God. And what do the people do? They worship him. I mean, there's fear and there's intimidation, and yet there's still this remembrance that he was a political savior, that he's the one who saved their pocketbooks. He's the one that brought them back to economic prosperity and stability. And just like many foolish Christians today, the pocketbook is their life and their money is their God. And if somebody says, I can make your dollar bills go further, then they'll throw morality and decency out the window. And they will support every rogue that's going, every immoral rogue there is. They'll swallow every perverted scheme because it seems good to them economically. You make your own application. And so people begin to worship the Antichrist. Now he fixed things. He, he got Israel fixed and gave them, gave them a temple. He, 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 Israel gets caught up in this too. They believe the lie of peace. And it's true for a while. But then the Antichrist turns on them and he does everything in his power to destroy them. Now next week we're going to look at that part of it. But for now, I'd like you to look at another scripture. I want you to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And, and this is just a remarkable chapter as the Apostle Paul explains some of the same things about the Antichrist. Now, the Thessalonians were very confused about end times, and so what Paul had to do is exactly what Jesus did. He, he, had to, he, he had to explain to them, like Jesus explained to the disciples, that what they were going through at that time was not the time for the kingdom. Now, they were experiencing persecution. There was all kinds of trouble they were going through, but Paul explains to them that their tribulation is not like the tribulation of the end times. So look at chapter 2, and here's where Paul pulls up alongside the prophecy of Daniel and of Jesus and later of the Apostle John, and here he describes the Antichrist. Verse number 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, Paul said what Jesus said. The end is not going to come and the kingdom will not come until there's a falling away and the man of sin is revealed. And who is that man of sin? He's the Antichrist. He's the beast. He's the son of perdition. Now, do you remember where we were at the beginning of the message? We were in Revelation chapter 20. And, the sa and Satan and the beast were, were cast into the lake of fire. That's the son of perdition. That word means destruction. The son of destruction 
And that's what God's going to do with him. He's going to destroy him. Now we would ask the question, what is his great crime? Well, there are many crimes, many crimes. But what is his greatest crime? His greatest crime is that he pretends to be God. Now listen to this narrative in Acts chapter 12. Just, just listen for a moment. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Herod said that he was God, and God struck him dead. Now you might remember that, because the greatest crime that you can commit is to pretend to be God. And did you know that that's what all people do that reject Jesus Christ? Did you know that when people say, I'm going to do it my way, and when they say, I'll do what I want to do, I'm the master of my fate, I'll do whatever it is I want to do, that's when they pretend to be God. Whenever you say no to God, then you pretend to be God, and that makes you a son of destruction. Well, I don't have time to go into detail now about this, but throughout history, there's been a lot of speculation about the Antichrist. Just who is this person who is the Antichrist? In the Protestant Reformation, there was a prevailing opinion that the Pope was the Antichrist. Now, the Puritans especially believed that, even... John Gill, who is the greatest of all Baptist theologians, believed that the Pope was the Antichrist. Now, I want you to listen to what he said against the uh, opinion of some that were in his day who said that the Roman emperors were the Antichrist, the, the succession of Roman emperors. And so he, he, he talks about this, and he tells us what he thinks that was intended in 2 Thessalonians when it talks about the man of sin. So this is what John Gill wrote in his commentary on 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. He said, regarding the man of sin, here it intends the whole hierarchy of Rome, monks, friars, priests, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, and especially popes who may well be called the man of sin because notoriously sinful. Not only sinners, but sin itself. A sink of sin, monsters of iniquity, spiritual wickedness in high places. It's not easy to reckon up their impieties, their adulteries, incest, sodomy, repent, murder, avarice, simony, perjury, lying, necromancy, familiarity with the devil, idolatry, witchcraft, and whatnot. And not only have they been guilty of the most notorious crimes themselves, but have been the patrons and encouragers of others in sin by dispensing with the laws of God and man, by making sins to be venial, by granting indulgences and pardon for the worst of crimes, by licensing brothel houses and countenancing all manner of wickedness. And therefore, it's no wonder to hear the following epithet, the son of perdition. Wow, I wish I'd said that. John Gill said the popes are antichrist. And do you know why that John Gill spoke so forcefully about that? It's because the pope claims to be the vicar of Christ, that he stands in the place of Christ, and the worst thing that you can do is to pretend to be God. Well, let me tell you this. The pope is not the antichrist, not the big antichrist. He is 
and Antichrist. As the Apostle John said in 1 John 2, 18, Little children, it's the last time, and as have you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. There are lots of little Antichrists, and the Pope is right there. Now, you just do a little bit of research on materials that are not propaganda-oriented, and you can find this information out. But that's not my subject today, not the Pope. Now, going back to 2 Thessalonians, the son, the son of perdition is not the Pope, but he does want to be worshipped as God. And so what does he do? He comes and he throws the Jews out of the temple, and then he goes into the temple and he sits there. Now, the last part of verse number 4 says, He as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And you say, well, how could he claim to be God? Who's going to believe that, that he's God? Well, go down to verses 8 and 9 in Second Thessalonians 2. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. So he comes with signs and lying wonders. Now, what did Christ do when he came? He came with signs and wonders. Weren't there great miracles that Christ did? And here's what the devil does. He empowers the Antichrist with counterfeit miracles, and he'll do signs and wonders. And so it appears that he has the power of God. And that's what he's after, to be worshipped as God. And so he's going to use those signs and lying wonders to convince people and people are terribly gullible. Did you know that? I mean, you look at Benny Hinn. I mean, he can pack out an auditorium, and there are some people who actually do believe that he can heal people. Benny Hinn said he could even raise people from the dead. And people go to hear Benny Hinn. People are very gullible. And in those days, they'll be more gullible than ever because the Antichrist can do these counterfeit miracles that will fool people. And the primary thing that he's trying to do is to turn the world against Israel. So he uses the signs and wonders to cause people to hunt the Jews to the ends of the earth and to destroy them. Now in Matthew 24, that's what Jesus is talking about. He calls, he calls them... Calls them to be aware in the next verses that they need to head for the hills because the Antichrist is coming after them. He says, when you see him go into the temple, then you'll know that it's not long, that the worst is about to come, the excruciating hurt is here, so get out of the way because he's coming to get you. But you've got to hold on just a second. And that is when he goes into the temple, that means the kingdom is close. After all of these years of waiting, now we've been waiting 2,000 years for the kingdom to come. I don't know how long it's going to be, how much longer it's going to be. But when this happens, it means there's only three and a half years that are left. And then Christ is going to come in his glory. And he'll come and he'll throw the Antichrist out of that temple. He'll defile it. I mean, that the one that, temp that the Antichrist defiled. Then Christ will build a new temple, more glorious than ever before. And then he will rule and reign in real peace and prosperity. And the nations of the world will come and worship him as the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, let me point out something as I close today. The devil's days are numbered. Even now, his days are numbered. 
The earth's evil system is numbered. All the things that you put your confidence in, everything that you hope for, and as far as the world is concerned, all of that, the days are numbered. It's all going to come to an end. And you might have escaped the judgment of God. You may have escaped for 20 years. And you might have escaped for 30 years or 40, maybe even 80. But your days are numbered. And before you know it, you're going to stand before the judgment of God and you will give an account for your life. And if you've not trusted Christ, you'll stand before God, who is the righteous judge, actually before Jesus Christ himself, and you'll look him in the eye and you'll tell him why you rejected him. And you'll tell him why, that after his suffering and his death and the blood that he shed, that after all of that, that he wasn't worthy of your confidence. You just didn't think that his blood counted for anything. And I'll tell you what he'll tell you. He'll say, there are no excuses. And he'll say, depart from me, you that work iniquity. You thought that you were God. You thought that you could defy him. You thought that you could do just whatever it is that you want. And you'll stand before a holy God. Now let me go back to Revelation 20 one more time. We started there, so let's end there. Just after the part where it talks about Satan and the Antichrist being thrown into fires of hell, this is what it says to those of you who think just like them, that you want to be God. He says, or the Bible says in Revelation 20, verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works." And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Listen again. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now who are those without their names written in the book of life? That's anybody that's not a believer. Anyone who says, I'll go my own way. I'll do my own thing. I want to be God. Now, do you know that those are the words of God as surely as what Jesus quoted from Daniel? Those are the authoritative words of God. And if Jesus is true, then these words are true. Now, you decide about that. Is he true? Does he tell the truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you want to see heaven instead of hell, then you'd better trust him today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. What a solemn time that we've been talking about. What a terrible time that's going to come upon this earth. Lord, the worst thing that can happen to anybody that's here today is not those times of tribulation on the earth, the worst thing that can happen to anybody who's here today is to experience the fires of hell because they have not trusted you as Savior. None of us has promised another day, another breath. 
And the Bible is very clear about this. We must know you if we're going to see God. If heaven is going to be our home, then we must trust the blood of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. I pray, Lord, that you'd open someone's eyes to that truth today. Help them to understand that they face a, a terrible judgment and then the fires of hell if they do not believe in Jesus Christ. Help us to realize this truth today. Make us stronger Christians because of it. As the Apostle Peter said, what kind of people ought we to be knowing these things? Lord, impress it upon us. Make it real to us. And may we trust you ever so more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.